Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We are off for the holidays, but in advance, we made you a fantastic show today. Spencer Ackerman of the newsletter Forever Wars looks back on two years of Biden's foreign policy to show us the patterns he's seeing. But first, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, New York Times climate correspondent, David Wallace-Wells. Welcome to Fast Politics, David Wallace-Wells. Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. Very thrilled to have you. I think first we should talk about COVID and then we should talk about climate. Let's do it. You have written a lot about COVID recently. There's a lot of interesting stuff, but the thing I want to talk to you about is learning loss. Anyone who has kids who lived through COVID, and I have many, have seen the learning loss and and what an issue that is. Where are we with addressing that? Because it seems like there has not been a ton done there. It depends how you want to think about a ton done. And I think it also is important to contextualize some of the the losses themselves, which is to say the data is really clear that American kids suffered setbacks over the course of the pandemic. And that's worrying. Judging by standardized testing, American students were not doing especially well to begin with. Right. Um, it was especially hard for low-income kids, places in, you know, under under-resourced areas to thrive according to these standards. And those gaps got much larger over the course of the pandemic. So there is damage there that we should want to address in a variety of ways 
it's tricky because we don't know exactly what to do to get people to learn better. I mean, if we knew that, we'd probably be implementing those tools, you know, long before the pandemic. And there is some evidence at the state level at cer- in certain states that already something like half or so of the learning loss that was observed over the course of the first two years of the pandemic has been recovered basically simply by kids being back in school and having face-to-face um, learning. But I also, you know, my own view is a little bit unorthodox here, which is that I think that we've made a little too much of these losses, which is to say, when you go into the the gold standard data, the best testing data that we have, we're talking about nationally average test scores on a scale of 500 falling from like 220 to 217, 221 to 216. Like I said, those are real losses. You know, they are setbacks. They mean that many kids are behind where they would be otherwise. But it's not like, you know, eighth graders are now reading like second graders. It's not like kids are graduating high school unable to do basic math. It means that some fraction of kids are a little bit behind where they would have been without the pandemic. On that point, I would just say, you know, the whole country is behind where we should be on a lot of points because of the pandemic. And when you look internationally, you see that even places that didn't do nearly, didn't have nearly as many interruptions to schooling, the UK, like Denmark, have had roughly comparable learning losses to the ones that we've had in the US. So while there's a, a lot of people want to point the finger at school closures, and I personally think we should regret a lot of the school closures. I also think that the ultimate impact of that policy was relatively limited. And it's probably, I would say, and this is, you know, this is speculation, it's it's not exactly proven science, but I would say that when we look at those setbacks and those learning losses, what we're seeing is the effect of what it means to live through a pandemic as much as we are the effect of what it means to suspend schooling for a period of of months at a time. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's always this idea that there's somehow people did the best they could, right? During that period when we didn't know a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, especially early on, everyone was very worried about kids getting sick. We wanted to take a lot of precautions. I think, you know, if you had been looking closely at the data, then you you could have seen that children were at much lower risk than other age groups. But of course, because we didn't have vaccines, it was also a lot harder to imagine that we could sort of prevent the virus from spreading through kids to older, more vulnerable people. And so there was a, a genuine public health imperative to try to limit spread in all directions in all ways. And that governed a lot of the policy in that first year. I think looking back on it now, we probably, if we had a chance to restart all of that would have done more to allow those who are not themselves at all that much risk from COVID infection right. to live slightly more normal lives and probably should have done more to target our protections to those, especially the, the elderly who are at much more risk. As you say, you know, it was a it was a messy, chaotic, very anxious time. And I personally think it's it's somewhat hard to judge, you know, most of our leaders for the decisions they made, especially in those months in the spring of, of 2020. By the fall of 2020, I think most schools should have been open. We should have spent those six months or so preparing to make sure that by September, all kids were in school. And the fact that in a lot of places they weren't is bad. On the other hand, most schools were open to some degree at some point over the course of that year. So it's all messy. It's all tricky. I think in general, the harder we try to narrativize the pandemic, the more complicated those stories become. Pandemic learning loss is like one of the things that certainly happened over the last couple of years, but exactly why and exactly how to fix it, I think is um, not so easy to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm reminded of when I came back from, from CPAC, 
one of my kids' school nurses, because I had gotten that letter that said I had been exposed, was like, please just keep your kids home. She's like, we don't know anything. She's like, just please. Yeah. She was just like, it's a favor to me, which I thought, you know, people were really scared. Well, I think that it continues to this day. I mean, the truth is that many kids have died. I don't want to downplay the, the ultimate cost of this pandemic to children. You know, the numbers are in the over a thousand, um, which is a horrible tragedy and thousands of horrible tragedies. In the grand scheme of things, kids are much safer than older people. The, the age skew is really quite dramatic, such that, you know, unvaccinated people are in their 80s are like thousands of times more at risk than little kids. And yet, of course, we have all of these intuitive, reflexive, protective gestures that, you know, because we believe kids are vulnerable in general, we have a hard time seeing them as safe and resilient. And, you know, those were reasonable feelings to have too. It was just, you know, everybody felt really unsure. Nobody had lived through a pandemic like this before. And, you know, in those cases, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say the precautionary principle should be the governing principle here. Have we lived through a pandemic now? You mean, are we on the other side of it? Yeah. Or are we in this sort of messy endemic period? Well, you know, we still have over 200 Americans dying a day these days. And for about six or eight months, it's been steadily between 300 and 500. And that's a annualized total of over 100,000 Americans dying a year, which would make COVID the third leading cause of death. It will be the third leading cause of death in 2022, and it presumably will be the third leading cause of death in 2023 too. So, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the question of where we are is, is a bit of a semantic one. I mean, COVID will be for the foreseeable future a meaningful additional mortality burden on the country. All of the vaccination, all of the boosters, all that, you know, all that all that stuff all the Paxlovid can only get us so far, and it's not going to eliminate this from our disease landscape. But, you know, the COVID deaths are well below um, cancer and heart disease, and we don't obsess about cancer and heart disease in the same way that we obsess about COVID even now. So there's probably some degree to which we're coming to terms with this new normal, um, this new abnormal, (laughs) to to coin a phrase. Um, And exactly how we live through that says a lot more about what our sort of priors and biases and values are than it does about the state of the disease, which is pretty clear. It's like the disease is spreading pretty rapidly. We're not really doing anything at all to stop its spread. Um, The cost of that in terms of lives is much, much lower than the same number of infections would have been a year or two ago. That that risk is concentrated very heavily in the elderly, um, which means that people who are under the age of 65 and are vaccinated are at extremely low risk. And yet at the social level, at the national level, it's still killing a lot of people. And what you make of that and how you, again, how you narrativize that is sort of up to you. But the data doesn't say that it's over. The data just says we're in a new phase. So I want to talk to you about this United Nations climate conference, which went off without a whimper, really, in (laughs) Egypt. What happened there? Because Glasgow was such a big deal. And this one sort of fizzled, puttered along. Yeah. Part of that is by design. So the way that these conferences work, they happen every year, but each one is meant to do a different kind of a thing. And the Glasgow one was designed to be the five-year anniversary of the Paris Accords. They ended up pushing it back a year, so it was six years after, not five years. On the five-year anniversary of the Paris Accords, basically all the countries of the world were supposed to come back and for the first time since Paris formally announce more ambitious pledges of decarbonization, which meant that in the lead-up to Glasgow, we just had a whole number of promises being made by the biggest countries, the biggest emitters in the world. And they added up to something quite significant. You know, Now something like, I think it's about 90% of all um, GDP and global emissions, 80% at least, are governed by these net zero pledges, which is countries promising to get all the way to carbon neutrality by 2050, 2060. And 
those are paper pledges. They're empty at the moment, you know, or in most cases they're empty, but they're still, it was still a quite significant rhetorical step forward that happened at Glasgow with all those countries making all those promises. This conference was never designed to do that. It wasn't um, in the, in the sort of rhythm of the COPs, the Conference of the Parties, which goes by COP. In the rhythm of these COPs, this was not meant to be one in which countries announced more ambitious pledges. It was meant to be what was called an implementation COP, which meant that the countries were sort of trying to figure out what what they needed from one another to meet the promises that they had made in Glasgow. And that meant that there was basically no news on the like emissions pledges or decarbonization front um, this time around, no, no significant news. But there was some movement that I think is actually quite remarkable on some other issues relating to climate justice and what's called loss and damage, which is basically the idea that, you know, the rich countries in the world are responsible for almost all the world's emissions today. They're especially responsible for historical emissions, which are still hanging in the atmosphere and heating the planet. And yet um, they're not the ones who are suffering most from the impacts of climate change. That is the poorest countries in the world who are, who've done the least to, to create the damage. So to put a number on that, Pakistan, which had this incredible monsoon flooding this year, that left by some measures about a third of the country underwater, certainly a large fraction of the country underwater, displaced over 30 million people and produced a huge wave of infectious disease because of all the malaria and dengue that was spreading because of mosquitoes in the stagnant water. This is a country that suffered the most devastating climate impact this year, 2022. And it's a country that has produced in its entire history only as much carbon emissions as the U.S. produces every single year. And that kind of dynamic holds true across South Asia and in in Southern Africa too, to some lesser degree, Southeast Asia. It's really this perverted, inverted moral logic where the countries that did this damage are not suffering all that much, and the countries who didn't are suffering most. And for a decade or two, those vulnerable countries have been coming to climate conferences and saying, something needs to be done about this. Like, you guys need to help us recover. These are countries like the Maldives, right? Yeah, uh, Mohammed Nasheed, who is the former president of the Maldives, I believe he's now the prime minister there, was one of the leading figures beginning about two decades ago and doing this. Mia Motley, who's the prime minister of Barbados, is now one of the leading figures. Um, but, you know, it was always on the margins of these conferences that it was the, these small, vulnerable countries who were saying, we need some help, guys. And really over the last few years, but especially over the last year, and then kind of culminating at this conference, there's been a kind of significant shift in the discourse where this is now pretty central to the way that almost everybody is talking about the challenge of climate change. How is it that we can help those countries who are most in need? And there was a a landmark agreement reached in this conference to build what's called a loss and damage facility. The details aren't exactly clear yet. They're going to be negotiated over the next couple of years. But basically, it was a commitment of the world's wealthy countries to provide some way through an institution like the World Bank or the IMF to direct funds to climate vulnerable countries so that they wouldn't be suffering as nakedly or as brutally the impacts of climate change that the wealthy countries of the world actually produced. So interesting. So did anything besides that come out that was good? I mean, it strikes me as a sort of outside observer that there's more focus on on greenwashing and some of the sort of the housekeeping that makes it look like people are doing more for climate than they are. Do you think that's accurate and how anxious are you about that? Yeah, I think in general, you know, on on the on one hand, it's a sign of progress that countries and corporations are making promises and feeling obligated to make promises. Relatedly, it's also a sign of progress that many people are looking at those promises and really really being strict about them and saying actually you're not on track to meet these goals and there's no plausible pathway to the decarbonization speed that you're applying here. You need to either 
really dramatically up your ambition and make serious investments or be a little bit more honest and transparent about where you're actually heading as opposed to where you're where you want us to believe you're heading that's a shift that's happening in the culture as a whole i think as part and parcel of climate change becoming more and more central to the way that people think about politics and policy and geopolitics over the last 5 years or so but there's been sort of significant movement within the UN climate community too, a set of guidelines that was published during the Sharm el-Sheikh COP, led by um, Catherine McKenna, who's a former environment minister of Canada, but with the um, support and endorsement of the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, um, that basically outlined a series of standards for companies in particular. It was saying like, if you don't meet these standards, you can't say that you're going to get to net zero. And there's not yet an enforcement mechanism that would actually you know, hold them to that. But I think it's the first step to say, here are the basic sets of standards we should be applying here. You know, exactly what that, where that leads in terms of whether corporations will up their ante, will increase their ambition, or will just back away from the rhetoric. I think we don't really know. A few years ago, it was a major, major, it was celebrated as a major step forward when BlackRock, which is this unbelievably large uh, invest in, investment firm. I think it's like, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's something like it would be one of the world's biggest economies. Yeah. They promised that they were going to be holding all of their portfolio companies to much stricter climate standards. And then like a year and a half later, they were basically like, actually, forget it. We're not going to do that. <laughs> so, you know, exactly what happens as a result of these new holding these people's feet to the fire is unclear. And you're seeing in the US, a lot of Republican attorneys general suing to push back against um, climate policies. So Republican. It's disgusting. It's especially disgusting because we're at the beginning of a partisan shift here, which is to say, especially because of the IRA, but also because of all the green energy investments that have been made over the last decade. You know, there's just, a, there's a lot of money being made in um, clean energy in red states right now. And I, I genuinely don't think that five or 10 years from now, you know, wind power and solar power are going to be coded in the same blue, red, left, right way that they are now, which means you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you're a red state saying you're going to push back against the IRA tax credits. It's like your state's going to be in a much better position if you take those tax credits and build out a new energy system. Right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. I do think that partisanship will stay because Republicans have, like we saw during the pandemic, been largely anti-science. You know, you had people who were actually dying and they were like, no, they're not. You know, it's a larger percentage of Republicans dying of COVID than Democrats still. So there's probably this anti-science way of thinking will continue, but certainly there'll be financial incentives, hopefully. I look at it like, you know, we had these three bills that passed over the last year that touch on climate. And the biggest was the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And that got no Republican votes in part because it was understood as a climate bill. But there was also the CHIPS Act and there was also the infrastructure bill, both of which were not pitched as climate bills and yet had a lot of climate spending in them. And those both got a fair number of Republican votes because it was really, you know, it's kind of like pork barrel spending. It's like you guys are going to get your your battery factories. You guys are going to get your money for your transmission lines. And it's hard to turn that down. If the temperature on the culture war part of climate can be turned down a little bit, I think that there's a chance to get Republican support for that kind of stuff going forward, even if I don't think we're going to get a second IRA anytime soon. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was super interesting. And uh, I hope you'll come back. Of course. Yeah. Great to talk. And let's talk again soon. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Spencer Ackerman writes the newsletter Forever War, Forever Wars, and is the author of Reign of Terror. Welcome to Fast Politics, Spencer Ackerman. Thanks very much, Molly. First, we're going to talk about the Biden administration. We are two years into the Biden administration. Tell us about the good, the bad, and the very weird. Two years in, I think like we can draw a kind of large, if preliminary, judgment which is like looking at the two years worth of of Biden handling of foreign policy, I think we've got like a clear story of what this administration will ultimately be known for when obviously a whole lot of unexpected stuff could happen in the next two years or, you know, if they get re-election the following four. But all of that said, I think this administration is going to be remembered for both inheriting and then taking ownership of what we'll look back on in the future as two cold wars at the same time. 
Russia and China. You see this a lot in the much criticized national security strategy that they put out, which is getting the kind of like typical sort of blob reaction that, you know, this doesn't make any actual priorities between stuff. This doesn't tell you what it is that the administration would actually choose if sort of stacked against each other um, in terms of blood treasure attention, stuff like that. Nevertheless, you had an historic decision by the Trump administration to say that, in fact, the long-term enemy of the United States is China. Probably, you know, with the exception of the Abraham Accords, that took the Mideastern anti-Iran coalition out of the shadows, no Trump decision was applauded on the foreign policy side more readily than, than that one. Pivoting the United States toward a 21st century, and they like to use the term great power competition with China, um, as well as the Biden administration upon taking office, seeing the Russians in, you know, not the same weight class as the Chinese, but the same, I guess, like mentality that these are enormous geopolitical actors, obviously China more so than Russia, that the United States needs to array itself against. They don't like to use the term Cold Wars for, I think, pretty obvious reasons. <laughs> yes. But, you know, if you look at, for instance, U.S. officials going to the Manama conference in Bahrain in November, while, you know, those officials took really great pains to tell, like, the Gulfies and the Israelis that, you know, we're not actually doing Cold Wars, we don't want blocks, they were simultaneously saying, do not hedge against us with Chinese, particularly communications or military purchases. So the administration really is saying, regardless of the presentation, that great power competition doesn't have to be a Cold War, that when they go talk to client states or states that, you know, may be client states, the message is fundamentally, you, you should choose us and not them for these varieties of reasons. I think that to an astonishing degree, given the two Cold Wars at the same time framework, thus far, I think they're succeeding on their own terms. We're not seeing the enormous downstream negative consequences, not just on economies that factionalize around the world, but the blood that Cold Wars mean outside of the imperial center. You know, think of what the Cold War meant in practice for Latin America, for Africa, for the Caribbean, for Southeast Asia, um, as well as, you know, for Europe and then domestically in American politics. But that's gonna, I would argue that's going to come. That inevitably, in a construct like this, you are going to get more and more dire choices of the sort that the American officials, you know, Colin Call, Brett McGurk, you know, very respected, you know, professionals on the Democratic side with a whole lot, you know, and in, in Brett's case, in particular, a ton of, you know, bipartisan, you know, foreign policy credentials. That's the choice that ultimately the aligned world or would be aligned world faces. And the downstream consequences of this haven't manifested yet. And I think the danger of that is that looks to the blob, for lack of a better term, like success. Right. The administration, the Biden administration, I think, is also benefiting from like, it looks like what foreign policy professionals kind of think of when they think of a coherent and cohesive foreign policy team. You know, the, the classic example is, you know, the, the, the one that exists 
um, in the the rosy memories of the U.S. foreign policy establishment is like the way the National Security Council worked under you know George Bush the father, a very coherent, minimally factionalized team, and you know you are not seeing what you saw with you know like for instance the Bush administration deeply factionalized and unable to get the outcomes it wanted on the world. You're not able to, you, you know, it doesn't look like the Obama team deeply, deeply factionalized where a tremendous amount of the security state simply did not trust and sought to undermine Obama. And also the team typically didn't, you know, get certainly in the first term what it thought it would achieve and usually simply acquiesced to the security state's priorities. And then you're also not getting what you got under Trump, which is tremendous factionalization yet again, and with the exception of like arraying for the Cold War and for the Abraham Accords, not really something that you would say achieved its objectives either. The the incoherence was the proof of the factionalization, whether that had to do with Syria, whether that had to do with Afghanistan and so on and so forth. So the Biden team is what, what I guess I'm trying to say is like, for the first two years, certainly you are just seeing a lot more of the you know major players rowing in the same direction. And accordingly, that looks, although that's an input, like success in an output. And I think all of this is going to turn out to be sort of dangerously illusory. Okay, you had many thoughts there. We have to- A lot there. <laughs> so we're going to slow down and break this all down. The central tenant of what you're talking about is that the Biden administration, I would say that they are more aligned than previous administrations. Even I think with the Trump administration, it's hard. I mean, I don't think they're a good example of anything because, I mean, basically they did a little foreign policy that Jared liked. Right. Trump loves autocrats. But I mean, there wasn't like a unifying foreign policy there. No. But with the Biden administration, you sort of think that the biggest danger of the Biden administration is that their foreign policy is too unified. I think it's more that there is a tremendous amount of consensus around the idea that what the United States needs to do in the 21st century is to the term they like to use is great power competition. I think in real terms, that means two cold wars at once. They won't be the same sorts of cold wars that you know the United right. States waged against the Soviet Union. But when you see senior officials saying to longtime U.S. allies, don't hedge against us, meaning don't start buying a lot of Chinese stuff, particularly on the communications and security side, stay with what we already have deep in our alliance. We, unlike China, and this was another argument that Brett McGurk and Colin Call made in Bahrain in November, have your regional interests against the Iranians in mind. The Chinese will not, and the Russians are now for our, you know drones in Ukraine dependent on the Iranians. So you're not going to get those sorts of, of support for your priorities. And so the thing is, is that if that continues to succeed, and again, lots of consensus for it, then we get a kind of tripartite division of the world at a time in which to be a little bit, you know, dramatic about it, you know, the viability of human life is really running out unless we unite. Yeah, which is the climate stuff. Yes, and like there is simply no way, notwithstanding, we're recording this right after this like massive fusion breakthrough right? that the Department of Energy announced yesterday. I 
when I was at Wired, had to write a whole lot about like energy generation through lasers, but I'm still not qualified <laughs> uh, to be able to talk about the implications <laughs> of what might turn out to be like yeah. a major resource transition of the 21st century. But you know, putting all of that aside, there is simply no way that humanity will come out of the 21st century with anything like the sustainability necessary for continued human civilization unless there is a kind of posture primarily of cooperation with these feuding great powers. And we are driving further away from it. And that, I think, is, is what I mean when I say that. That's what I mean when I say the danger of this foreign policy and the consensus that it represents is that while it is succeeding on its own terms at the moment, from the big picture perspective, that moves us in a direction that like our grandchildren will curse us for moving in. Right, right, right. And then on, you know, more quotidian ways in which I shouldn't say quotidian, but like ways in which, you know, the disastrous effects of which will manifest earlier. You know, Biden, I think, has done um, a pretty good and responsible job of limiting the American commitment in Ukraine. But once you commit to arming, you know, the Ukrainians to defeat, you know, an aggressor's invasion, that has itself all built in escalatory pressures. And like you can just imagine a successor administration or this administration under greater pressure from a Republican Congress. Just changing their mind. Yeah, just just being like, you know, we've been adjusting the range of the HIMARS artillery launcher, which can basically like hit nearly if you were fire it from you know, New York, where we are, it would basically like hit somewhere just shy of Baltimore. Yeah. Right. Like we're mod- like the, the administration is modifying like the range on the HIMARS so that like the Ukrainians don't hit inside of Russia. But they could. But, you know, perhaps not forever. You know, right now there is an active discussion. You know, we're recording this, you know, right as the Pentagon is still saying, like, we've made no decision yet, but to provide Patriot batteries for, you know, greater air defense. All of these escalatory pressures are built in the longer the war goes on. And that will require, on the one hand, you know, very careful management, but also an administration and a political climate that's interested in that kind of careful management, that's interested in limiting the commitment, like limiting the range of possibilities within already a pitiless war. Okay, so stop for a minute. I want to ask you, the Cold War is Russia and China. There are two Cold Wars, right? One is Russia, one is China. These two foreign powers are not the same. Certainly not. China, that's a forever war, right? I mean, Russia is like on the verge of being a hot war. How would you even try to like make some kind of detente with China? I think, you know, detente with China, and also we should mention, like, you know, as part of the Biden administration waging this, you know, Cold War against China, it's launched like a massive bet to decouple its economy from the Chinese, which is, that's one way in which the China-US competition just doesn't resemble the US-Soviet competition, like the trade ties are intense, like the manufacturing relationship is like, there's just nothing like that with the US and the Soviet Union in the 20th century. But the Chinese say quite often, like, this is an unfortunate posture of the United States, and we would just, you know, discuss this more with them. And that, I think, probably has to be the way in which 
both this administration and future administrations adjust to the rise of China, that management of all of its different suite of issues, like has to be the subject of constant diplomacy, because, you know, history tells us, as the economic might of China increases, so will the foreign ambitions of China, so will its resource dependence, so will also the ways in which, much like the United States before it, the terms of like infrastructure dealing, what the Chinese call, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, become debt traps, become the ways in which satellites are formed. All of this has to be negotiated between Beijing and Washington, between, you know, larger macro political structures, international structures, ultimately deal with one another, not because this is an easy thing to bridge, but because the needs of everyone are so massive and so dependent so urgently on this happening. So, you know, it simply has to be kind of particularly if the United States is going to sort of stay with a construct of the Chinese being a principal adversary and then the the Russians being kind of the next guy down, that that is the geopolitical relationship that matters the most and requires the most attention. One thing I would say, a consequence of all of this, I've said this has gone pretty well for Biden so far, one enormous consequence that right now you could cut either way, but I don't know in the future if it'll stay that way is, you know, last February 4th, the Chinese and the Russians agreed to what they called a no-limit friendship. Now, that's been very complicated for the Chinese by Russia, like seeing that as a green light to invade Ukraine. But on the other hand, you know, while a lot of people focus on how, you know, Russia can't really help China, China can really help Russia. If I'm Russia and I have an economy smaller than Italy, what my best possibility here is to become an adjunct of Chinese power, basically the le- basically this analogy doesn't work for a lot of ways, but just politically, I think it, it'll capture it somewhat. Be Britain to China's United States. I don't think China has much appetite for that. From a resource perspective, it surely does. China's already becoming a massive energy customer of the Russians, and that will likely continue. That's also what Xi Jinping's recent visit to Saudi Arabia is lining up, that the Chinese want what the United States didn't really see a need for until 1973, which is a diversified energy supply. And that's a sense in which the Chinese and Russian relationship won't be equal, but is something that really does kind of make sense on its own terms and really makes sense in the context of the United States declaring, we see both of these major powers, one obviously bigger than the other, as our principal adversaries. That drives China and Russia together in precisely the way that, think of the meme, you know, the worst person you know made a great point. Something like Henry Kissinger made a point of saying, like, just as a matter of basics, we cannot have China and the Soviet Union aligned with one another. We have to break that. And right now, that's broken against the United States. Spencer, so interesting. Well, thank you, Molly. I appreciate you you letting me go on my little spiel. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. 
There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.